0: Welcome to another episode of EW Star Wars Untold Stories. This week, Darren and I are going to be looking back at The Empire Strikes Back, so excited, my favorite, and catch up on Disney's The Mandalorian through episode four. So just sit back and sip some of your bone broth soup as Darren and I battle it out. But first, a couple housekeeping things. If you're listening to this on the Game of Thrones weekly feed, and you probably are because we see the numbers, subscribe also to the Star Wars Untold Stories feed because at some point this is going to jump from the got. Be exclusively to the new one uh but don't unsubscribe to the thrones one because we might have new content for that in 2020 and if you want like this podcast want it to continue uh do us a favor and leave a real quick five-star review maybe tell a friend about it it's a type of thing that really makes a difference to the empire which we all serve okay darren let's start out with mando episode four uh what were your sort of thoughts on this one
1: uh, you know, James, uh, Mandalorian episode four was a pretty good episode of Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. Um, I, I always kind of enjoyed and had a soft spot for the 90s, uh, often like syndicated fantasy shows that were all kind of variations of like person goes to different villages, which always kind of look like they've been created out of a pottery barn, uh, fights a bad guy, maybe has a romance, and then leaves. And that's kind of what this episode was. Um, I have to admit, I continue to be somewhat baffled by what kind of show Mandalorian is precisely. I kind of said after episode three, okay, I think I have a handle on this. This sort of overall season is telling the story of the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, who isn't actually Yoda, but that's what everybody calls him now, Um, and they're sort of running away from now a combination of the entire Bounty Guild and the sort of uh, Imperial remnants led by uh, Commodore Herzog. Um, This episode seemed to argue that actually We are kind of watching, um, you know, more of a fugitive style series. And, you know, it's cool in a way that a show can do lots of different things. I can't say that the affairs of the villagers um, were all that compelling. And all in all, it just felt a little goofy to me in a way that I'm not sure the show was really prepared for. And I, I like goofy television, Um, and I I continue to love Baby Yoda uh, more than I love pretty much anything else on the show, and I was even really stoked to see Gina Carano, um, you know, who, uh, besides being an actual true life fighter, has had some really uh, fun roles in Haywire and the Fast and Furious franchise, Um, but this for me was kind of another episode where Clearly a lot of money on screen, and I'm not really sure it's paying off, but but, how did you feel? I mean, in some ways, this was kind of the most character insight we've gotten into Mando, at least as far as, you know, to go along with the flashbacks, which clearly show that he has a kind of sorrowful backstory. This was the first time a character actually talked to him about himself. Did you kind of like that aspect of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, this is the Mandalorian version of The Magnificent Seven, except it's basically The Magnificent Two, right? And uh, where you have the, the the gunfire fighters that are hired to save the village from, from bandits. Um, and given that Mandalorian is looking to explore those Western samurai roots of Star Wars, that made the storyline seem like one of those ones that was inevitable. So it's totally on brand for for what they're doing. I, I do wish they had done a version of that storyline where where not every beat was pretty much exactly what you expected it to be. Yeah. Um and and I you know thought uh, you know Cardoon was a bit like okay, it's the perfunctory, let's fight then be friends sort of Uh, So I I guess I was hoping for a little bit more that was unexpected in there.
1: Yeah, you know, um, James, it's interesting. The Magnificent Seven comparison brings up something that uh, I'm gonna get a little cross about right now because I know that there is a sense that this show is a space western, whatever that kind of means. I mean, that genre description has been used in a lot of different ways to describe everything from Star Trek to kind of Firefly being the most obvious example. And, you know, One thing that I, as somebody who loves Westerns, find I have to constantly explain to people is, like, Westerns aren't simple, and Westerns don't have to be dumb. Like, you know, I know there's this kind of sense of, oh, it's like black hats and white hats, and it's like, have you seen High Noon? Like, have you seen Johnny Guitar? Like, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? Like, you know, what's weird to me is that this was so obviously a magnificent seven, Seven Samurai riff, but like those movies, I mean, maybe Seven isn't even like that great. Seven Samurai is a masterpiece, but like, you know, they're both kind of like sad at times, and, and they're painting in some sort of complicated emotional palettes. And you know, the point of those movies is definitely not that like you know these badasses are coming to town and like having these like lovely interactions with locals, and they all learn to get along great, and there's a victory where all the good people survive. Like that's that again is. That's the kind of like super Disney influence on this show that I don't think is really that interesting because to have these characters who clearly have been through a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I was really interested that like you know the main villager character that we got to know, the woman. Um, there's clearly like a history there, and in a compelling way, we didn't really learn too much about it. Like she she can shoot. That's pretty much all we know. There's clearly a lot more going on there. You know the, the fact that she's a widow, and I liked that. You know the show didn't feel the need to over-explain all of that. Um, but you know deep down, this is kind of just a pretty standard, almost video gamey subplot where it's like, okay, like, you know, the bad guys are coming in. Arrange yourself for the for the arrival of the horde, and you know after the smaller bad guys arrive, finally the big guy will will get there. And again, you know, an ATSD with red eyes in nighttime that's a super cool visual, and in a way, that's kind of for me that's actually been the most interesting visual storytelling the the show's done so far. Um, but yeah, you know, as you were kind of saying. It's the kind of quality of you know all the beats and it doesn't really feel like there's a lot of surprise there. That's what I was kind of struggling with a little bit. Um, You you'd kind of mentioned that you kind of feel like this episode could be removed from the story, which reminds me of our ongoing debate about the perfect Breaking Bad episode, Fly, which I love and which... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that reminded me too. I I didn't want to bring that up because I didn't want to have us fighting for a half hour about about the merits or demerits <laughs> but, but, of but, the fly episode. Um, of Breaking that, you
1: know, I I do want to say like I think it's very interesting that the show is willing to do that more kind of breakaway storytelling. Um, but I guess I kind of find you know we're about halfway through this season now, and it still is very unclear to me you know what the overall arc is, Um, but uh, you know, uh, how did you feel just in general about the world building of this episode? Because this to me was kind of, you know, everything else we've seen so far has felt kind of Tatooine or Tatooine adjacent. To me, this was kind of the show's first attempt to be like, okay, we're doing something kind of new here in the Star Wars galaxy. Uh, Did you kind of dig the environment at all or this kind of new forest swamp uh, farm world? Did that kind of, you know, do it for you just as far as like galaxy far, far away? awareness
0: i mean I, I was i was excited to get out of like dirt town because i because i felt like we, we spent like a lot of time in dirt town and as as a star wars shows always always do but but so i i yeah. sort of welcomed the the change of, of environment um you know i did want to get to, to the helmet thing because you know he explains i mean it had, it had which led to actually my, my least favorite shot i think in in the show so far it's where he is he explains i never take off my helmet in front of other people and the very next shot is him taking off his helmet with the kids yes, playing yes, what yes. looks like a few feet away from him and you're sitting there <laughs> going but wait can't they see him you know so it was it was like this really kind of jarring jarring shot but but i i do want to talk about that because um, you know, this is new, I think in Canon, I mean, Jango Fett didn't wear his helmet, you know, where, his helmet around other people, um, uh, Sabine Ren and rebels, uh, took off her helmet, uh, the leadership, uh, from death watch and rebels, uh, or- Ordo in the EU books, you've been previously shown to be like allowed to do that. And I feel like this is like a fix for a script problem that potentially creates a new problem. And, and let me explain. I, I feel like Jon Favreau wanted his lead character to never take off his helmet or at least not take it off for most of the season and have that be his thing. So how do you justify that? So to justify it, they wrote this this, this new mythology to explain that in the show, that if he takes off the you know the helmet, that he's no longer part, part of the tribe, and he can't go back. And you can kind of justify that because Mandalorians are tribal, so you can always say, well, that's his specific tribe's thing, right? but i think the one problem that creates or maybe it's not a problem maybe it's just me it because it makes our hero sound a bit like he's in this like repressive religious cult like the way is supreme and unchangeable you're in, in, indoctrinated as kids and if you don't adhere to this kind of cruel and weird helmet rule you're you're separated and cast out from the group i mean that's like 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 a religious cult or something and so a hallmark of the lone wandering hero is his independence and free will but instead it feels like we're watching the the show where instead of wearing it for like his protection or because, or because he likes it maybe you you know, you have a guy who sounds like he's been a bit like a kind of brainwashed in, 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 into wearing this and and so so i, I think that puts me at a little bit of distance from from the hero.
1: Yeah, I, I I think so perfectly stated, James, and I wanna say, you know, for people listening to this who are even more steeped in the canon than you clearly are, because you just named two people I've never even heard of, um, you know, I, I'm very aware that, like, with Boba Fett and with Jango, there was always kind of this notion of they're wearing Mandalorian armor, but they are not themselves, whatever Mandalorian is, and like you know this this broader sense of a history behind the armor. And you know I, I do want to give the show some credit for kind of saying, okay, we're kind of diving deep into that. But to me, to your point exactly, it's kind of where mythologies in entertainment go wrong, is where you kind of are saying, here's something that's very cool in this case, to go back to Empire Strikes Back, which we'll talk about in a second, a character who never takes his helmet off. Very cool, very cool helmet, great. Now, you know, in the fullness of time, after so much has been written about it, this show which is trying very hard, as you point out, to, pay, to, to kind of get into the backdrop of all of this Mandalorian stuff, suddenly, you kind of just become this religion of not taking off your helmet. And to me, James, I mean, I, I've been kind of rewatching the Star Wars prequels, which we'll be talking about a little bit in, in our next episode. And it's kind of the same prequel problem as what happened to the Jedi Knights, where in the original trilogy, you know, you kind of heard a little bit about the Jedi and you can always kind of like imagine them as they're kind of a combination of Knights Templar and sort of priests, but you know, it's not, it's not as if enough is kind of made clear to make you really ponder too much about what is their background. Then, very similar to The Mandalorians, actually, you get to episode two, episode three, where you realize, oh, actually, this is a like deeply emotionally repressive religious caste of people, I, you know, to be a Jedi, and again, this is canonical, at least in the prequels, to be a Jedi, you kind of have to say, I'm going to live a celibate lifestyle Starting from joining this club from a time I'm like six or seven. And, you know, I, I, I think to give The Mandalorian some credit, the implication is that, you know, our main character joined up with this, as you kind of pointed out, tribal religion after a, a horrific incident of seeming genocide. So, kind of like, okay, this is, you know, this is the kind of intense, you know, emotional child uh, experience that can drive someone into a group like this. But, you know, as you said, we're, this is suddenly not just, you know, it could have just been, he never takes off his helmet, and that's it. Like, for protection, for his own psychological reasons, you know, now we've plumbed those depths so much, and it's just kind of, as you said, it, it makes him seem like a much more remote character. Is that to me? That's the closest comparison. Is kind of how the Jedi feel in the prequels, where they're just these incredibly emotionally cut off people who are supposed to be the heroes of the story. Yeah, I, I,
0: I, I guess the, the the Jedi sort of you know version of of, of, of Zen Buddhism it, it just comes off a bit more more palatable and and positivity seeming ish. You know, <laughs> so so I, I think that kind of goes down a little bit easier. Um, I, I guess my uh-huh. feelings about it come down to what the show's intention is here. is like, is the show's intention right. that this is cool? Or is the show's intention, and this is why I hope that he's going for. I hope that part of his journey in the show is breaking free from his tribe and becoming his own person. that eventually he has to sort of, you, you know, you know, sort of go against uh, his tribe and becomes more more of the, like the wandering Ronin, you know, who yeah, you know, still wears his helmet for, for his own reasons, but not because you know he's he's afraid of being rejected from from his group if he takes his armored space burka off.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm suspicious. So far, the Mandalorian seems very focused on uh, the Foundlings and on how cool jetpacks are. So I, I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure the show is going to circle back around to the the extreme strangeness of Mandalorian culture. Um, but yeah, I'm, it's dreamy to hear you say that because I think that's kind of been, you know, my other struggle so far with the show is it seems at its core to want to kind of do these pretty interesting, straightforward stories. And, you know, we're talking so much about things this episode reminded us of, I think because this is the first time where I've really felt that, okay, you know, this is a show about these two characters wandering new places and having these experiences. And that's a very, very difficult and interesting kind of show to pull off and and to do well. And to me, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, the reasons why they're wandering are now pretty straightforward and I like that. It's literally just kind of, we're trying to escape from all these people who are trying to kill us. No better reason to stay on the move than that. Um, but, you know, if that's the kind of show that it is, then it's kind of like, okay, some of the longer-form mythological stuff is not really that interesting anymore. and you know if the best you're coming up with, given the budget you have and the amount of production that went into this, is you know, the, the kind of a Star Trek insurrection level society. I, that's a little worrisome to me. Um, but again, Baby Yoda is very cute. And one thing to mention, James, is that uh, last week you and I didn't really talk that much about what is Baby Yoda? Why does everyone want him? What is the Empire kind of chasing after? Because he's
0: adorable, clearly. Well,
1: well, I do like the idea that the reason why like the, the Imperial Remnants want him is just because he's so cute. Like, uh, you know, of, of course you would want a Baby Yoda.
0: They just really want to capture his image to create a line of, of, of plush toys uh, that sells like gangbusters, and then they use those plush toy cuteness to to fund their evil empire.
1: I mean, which would be
0: incredible, That's
1: which would be- incredible. Either that
0: or midichlorians, one of those.
1: Too. That would be incredible. Uh, that is the that is the, the 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 punk rock satire version of Star Wars that I'm certainly chasing after. Um, but uh, it's funny. I, I actually rewatched uh, um, Episode three because uh, my wife hadn't seen it, and that episode. I mean, if nothing else, it seemed to confirm there's something biomedical, force scientific that the Empire is after.
0: I mean it has to be a uh, midichlorians, right? <laughs> I mean, I I mean is I, I it would be great if he t- if John Favreau took something that's so maligned from Phantom Menace and made it into something that's totally pivotal. I I, I there there's something kind of Kind of, you know, blatantly, sort of, you know, middle finger flipping off the, the the prequels haters. That I actually kind of like about that. It would it would certainly
1: be fascinating to me if the word Mitachlorian is even said again, because you know, so much of so much of the initial wave of Disney's version of Star Wars was very much rooted in kind of like. Closing the page entirely on the prequels. Obviously, in Rogue One, you had the reincorporation of some aspects of that trilogy. But yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's kind of my other fear in general. Um, you know, James, in rewatching the prequels, th- there's a lot that I've come to appreciate about those movies that I, I think tends to, tends to get lost in the general hatred that they receive. Um, but there's still a lot about those movies that doesn't work, and it's a little. Strange to see, you know, this idea of. This super force sensitive kid as the MacGuffin. I shouldn't even say kid. He's a fifty year old for goodness sakes. Um, but th- this super force sensitive, cute young thing in a robe that is kind of the center of the story. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting to see history repeating itself in that specific way. Um, but uh, you know, again, we'll we'll kind of be we'll, we'll be checking out this again next week when we see what show The Mandalorian is in episode five.
0: Uh, the biggest surprise for me in all this is, is how the Mandalorians co-stars are not really co-stars like IG 11 is like in one episode, Nick Nolte, I think in two episodes, uh, Cara Dune, we might see her again, but it, it wasn't ended in which a way in which we expect to, and we still haven't even seen John Carlo Esposito yet playing um, Moff Gideon, uh, who's in some ways the character I, I was looking forward to most. Um, so far, the most consistent co-star has been one we didn't even know about, and that's Baby Yoda. So it, it's, it's an interesting presentation of a show. And, and to this, I have to give it kind of credit. I don't think I've ever seen a show that was billed as this ensemble cast that turns out it's not an ensemble cast, that's billed as a drama when episodes are like a half hour long, And and has this sort of structure that's really kind of unique, and I like that. There's a sense of of liking that I'm not quite know. I I don't quite know what to expect each week, and I think I would probably like it more if not for episode two. And this is going to lead into our discussion of Empire Strikes Back, because to me, episode two was so great. In in mandalorian that the next two episodes after that felt like a little bit of a letdown because i'm like oh well yeah but it wasn't as good as the second one um and because they're all kind of these self-contained stories to some degree you kind of compare them that way as opposed to something that sort of feels like it like flows from one thing to another and that's the same thing with empire strikes back empire strikes back was so great Every other Star Wars movie came, that came after that I was like, oh, yeah, it was it, it was it was really good, or it was great, or it was really fun, or, but yeah, it's, it's still not Empire Strikes Back. It, it, it's like this one thing that set the bar so impossibly high that that can probably never be quite recreated again. So let's let's talk about it. We, you know, since this is Star Wars Untold Stories, we're gonna be talking specifically about the I am your father scene. But before that, I'm not gonna let this opportunity go by without talking about the movie. Uh, in general, because it, it's so beloved, it's so perfect, it's so iconic. Um, you know, what are you? I, I mean, you're you can be a bit of a contrarian, Darren. I, I'm I'm wondering if, if if your feeling about Empire is is that actually you know I think you know Revenge of the Sith is better or something. Uh,
1: well, well, we'll we'll talk about my 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 somewhat positive experience of Revenge of the Sith next week. But uh, no, Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie, and the reason for that is something that kind of surprises me every time I watch it because um, when I was a kid, it was probably my least favorite between three movies that I watched and loved all the time. Um, Just because I I think as a kid, you know, Return of the Jedi has all the toys and the first Star Wars movie has just kind of the most, you know, victorious feeling. I mean, we talked a little bit last week about the Death Star Trench scene, which I think is just like, you know, such a perfect buildup for a movie to get to. Um, but Empire is just the one that, I think probably from age 12 onwards, it's the one that I return to the most. And the reason for that is, you know, it's easy to say that it's like the dark one or the sad one. It is the one where it begins with the rebels losing and you know the whole movie from there is just like things not working out yeah. the way they should. Um,
0: but for me, That's too easy of, of, of a description. T- t- totally. That, that simplifies it too totally.
1: much. For me, it's just the one where the energy level and the excitement level and the way in which one problem leads into another and the way that the, our heroes respond to those problems in this incredibly kind of joyous way, even as they're kind of constantly you know, battling for their life, um, you know, this is the movie where for me, the kind of unbroken stretch of Star Wars perfection is the lead up into the Battle of Hoth, and the Battle of Hoth is such an incredible portrait of, you know, space battle. It, it's, often called, it's often called a ground battle, but it is really a space to ground battle. The whole problem of it is kind of like, you know, how do we get these people who are in this base down here out of this system. There are Stardust Tours in the atmosphere. There are at coming in. That's also incredible.
0: But everything like my, my my favorite shot in the film is the through the binoculars reveal pullback of the ATH. Uh, the, at the at Walker. Oh my god. That 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 shot is 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 so terrific. It's so
1: terrific and, and you know everything just from there, you know the Millennium Falcon as it's going, you know, through the asteroid field into the literal belly of the beast. The Minox, like for me James, it's the one that cuts the most consistently and uh, you know effectively from these total, you know, these heavy huge Empire versus Rebel problems, these even heavier dark side versus light side father versus Sun problems to just like shot for shot, scene for scene, the most exciting world building, and you know even like um, you know background characters who all became huge parts of the iconography. So for me, for me, that's why it's the best. Is it in some ways? It's kind of the it's it's the brightest feeling, even if it is sort of the, the darkest for what's happening to the characters. Is that kind of how you how you feel? Is is that why it's the best?
0: There is a whole dinner. With Han Solo, Princess Leia, Lando Calrissian, and Darth Vader, that we will never see. That I that 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 it, it's just, just like this little tease of of that, and then they cut away from it, and it's like it's like all you want in the world is to be on a fly on the wall during that dinner. Yes,
1: totally, and it's th- that's the kind of movie that it is. Is like as you said, you get this tease. It's literally one second of Darth Vader at a dinner table saying, like, you know, let's let's sit down," and like I, I just think every scene of the movie is like that. I mean, even, you know, the, the wampa who in the original theatrical version you don't ever really see, I mean, that that could be a whole separate, you know, the wampa scene is basically an episode of Mandalorian that plays out in like, you know, five minutes and it's just so, um, you know, that's the kind of feel of the movie in general. What was your kind of, I, I, I'm intrigued to know what was your, what are your kind of early memories of the movie? Like when you were kind of a, a younger person watching these movies, was it already kind of your, your top one or is that kind of like, like, for me, it was a more gradual experience growing into it. I, 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 I think.
0: I I think I always loved star Wars and empire the best and, uh, and empire kind of quickly became my, 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 my number one. I, I, I I still remember the, the, the shock of seeing the, I am, you know, I am your father scene, which we'll talk about in a bit. And, and just, yeah, there's a immersion to it, and, and 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 the dialogue is so crackling. And and you know another little bit that hint that you see is 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 with him with his helmet off in his meditation chamber, and you know Darth Vader goes on this murder spree, just killing just one officer after another. The whole thing is is just kind of a fascinating story. And you know, and one thing I find interesting as an adult about it is is. Um, the documentary, the Star Wars documentary, Empire of Dreams, it talks about how Lucas, you know, when first making New Hope, he made a ton of money by trading his, part of his directing fee for sequel and merchandising rights, which is my favorite thing ever. It has to be the worst deal a studio ever made. It's really the biggest robbery in Hollywood history for Fox. The front, all the money for Star Wars. And then they give him the most valuable part of the deal, but nobody ever made money off merchandising back then. Nobody ever made money off sequels back then. So Lucas got control of this incredible empire You know, you know, just for sacrificing like a very modest directorial fee. And so he made a bunch of money off New Hope and it was a surprise success. This lightning, the seeming lightning in a bottle can never repeat again sort of thing. But in order to retain creative control, he bankrolled Empire himself. So he bet all the money he made on the first one and took out loans to go into debt to to finance the second one. So so he he, he literally just put push all his chips into the center of the table to, to do this at a time when sequels weren't really a thing. I mean, there's like Godfather 2 and and, uh, you know, um, um, Dirty Harry and a few others. But I mean, but there is no sense that this could work a second time. And then he put a puppet Yoda in the center of the movie. And if the puppet didn't work, the movie didn't work. So the guy. You know, you know, gambled everything on this, and I think the smartest movie made was hiring um, uh, uh, Irvin Kirshner and then getting out of his way. There, there, there's as director because there's this, there's an image of the script from Empire Strikes Back online with all of Kirshner's notes on it, and it's this heavily edited document of Luke of Kirshner changing stuff that Lucas wrote. And it's just perfect. It's a scene with Han and Leia in, in the Millennium Falcon co- cockpit and Kershner slashing space talk and he's cutting out needless exposition and adding little bits of humor. Uh, oh, we'll float away. You know, oh yeah. Uh, w- with the rest of the garbage, you know, and these little conversational lines that make their, their relationship feel more natural and more real. And I think empire works b- because it's the combination of George's vision and a director who was, fantastic who could edit that vision and execute it really well and and so so i so 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 when i think of empire i i think that that's why it worked
1: i think that's exactly right you know it, it's such an exemplar of like you know collaboration which is something that really after this movie george lucas largely stopped doing and you know even you know there are famous things about how the han solo i love you i know thing was kind of partially improvised and just even you know the, the, the sound of the hyperdrive not working is, <laughs> is you know that, that is like worth, a
0: 72 pinto that won't start
1: that is worth and, and, and you know like sound designer Ben Burtt just he created something so perfect there because it really does seem to be laughing at Han Solo it's just like <laughs> like you, right. know, you you are right. not going to get me going and
0: and, and and Harrison is just like his his you know peak charisma just like you know just the This this, like, I mean, I mean, every, I mean. Yeah, every kid growing up wanted to be Han Solo, basically.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. And and the reason for that, it's so specific because, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the, the first Star Wars movie made him look like such a cool guy, and he's very cool in Empire, but there's almost something a little you know, he's he's a sibling to Kurt Russell in Big Trouble, in Little China, where he's a guy who who thinks he's cool, and so much of the movie is just kind of punishing him in this very comedic way. Um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned Kirchner's of comedic timing, which is so forefront in the Han and Leia stuff in Empire. Um, But, you know, to me there is also the the dramatic stuff that happens in Empire. You know, it's not just, um, one of my kind of frustrations sometimes with Marvel movies is Marvel movies are very good at making fun of themselves and terrible at kind of like then turning around and delivering the dramatic goods. And uh, this movie, wow, when it turns around and, and, and has to get dramatic, does so in such a great way. Uh, James, you've kind of written this incredible um, reported piece all about uh, the I Am Your Father scene and, you know, where it came from and the kind of effect that it had. And one thing that I I, I was kind of fascinated to, to remember, James, as you were kind of talking to Lawrence Kasdan, the screenwriter, and Mark Hamill about this, is, like, you know, we associate high levels of secrecy with the sort of JJ Abrams model of storytelling and this, this this new idea of like you know plot points have to be kept such under wraps because the internet reveals everything but they were already kind of doing that CIA level secrecy in you know 79 and 80 when they were filming this right Like that, that's so remarkable to me that they yeah. had to already be kind of thinking about that yeah
0: yeah they they had they had fake pages uh, they you know the original line in the original script was was that Obi Wan Kenobi uh, killed Luke's father? I mean that 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 was to be the reveal. That's what was said by actor David Prowse in, in Vader's costume on set, and then it promptly, you know, even with all their security uh, for for the set, it promptly leaked. I mean, it it went to like a British tabloid within a week, and so it was really good that that, that they that they took that step, and and uh, yeah, it's. You know, it's it's fascinating because it works for so many reasons. Um, it works because it's it's shocking and disturbing. You know, Luke's father is not only for first of all, you, you don't even think that he's alive. You know, so was, wait, he's not only alive, but he's also his mortal enemy right there. You know, it, it worked because it made sense, even though it wasn't conceived by Lucas until after he shot a New Hope, um, it, and it worked because it came at the end of this like incredible lightsaber battle that left Luke pummeled, maimed and, and, and defeated to me, that lightsaber saber battle along with the, the phantom menace climax, um, which we'll th- we were definitely talking about in a later po- podcast is so great because it's so full of dread. You start out thinking, you start out worried about your hero considering what he's going up against, but you think your hero is going to win. And then he just gradually gets, it becomes more and more clear that he's just hopelessly outmatched. And you begin to get this feeling of real despair, you know, and combined with, uh, with, uh, with Han Solo, having just been frozen. I mean, you think that, you know, this, the, you know, that your heroes could be like really doomed. And, uh, Kazin was was telling us that every single scene, and this is what you kind of don't realize watching is every single scene empire is written and executed with that revelation in mind. And the way he put it, he's like, all the energy in the storytelling that preceded it was aimed at this tiny spot. It's like if you're trying to get to Mars, and if you're one degree off, you wouldn't get there. And that's what that scene was like for all of us. They wanted to be have the I Am Your Father reveal be at the perfect time, the perfect place to blow people's minds.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's mind-blowing in such an interesting way because... In in some ways, I actually think this twist both makes and kind of breaks a lot of the Star Wars stories that followed it because, you know, Again, empires operating in so many different directions. You kind of have th- th- this really dire period, and the actual war that Star Wars was originally about. You have this kind of interesting expansion of your understanding of what the Force is, and that great kind of line with um, you know Yoda and Frank Oz, just never n- never better in the performance of Yoda talking about you know th- we're luminous beings and this great as you were kind of saying you know Buddhism adjacent vibe of the religious aspect of Star Wars, you have the kind of romance of uh, of Han and Leia, you have just kind of the the action thrills, then you get to the twist, it's kind of like, okay, this is also a family story, the the, the the ten ring circus of Star Wars has kind of also taken on this very personal thing, which, you know, I mean, I I don't remember this ever being a twist. This for me was always something that I just kind of knew about Star Wars, and so the idea of the original trilogy and then of the prequels being this kind of Skywalker family saga was always kind of front and center. And there's times, James, where I wonder if that has actually adversely affected where the franchise has had to go since Empire. It it, it kind of means that, You know, everything kind of flows through the Skywalkers, even, you know, everything we've heard about the rise of Skywalker has described it as the end of this kind of Skywalker family saga. What that means and who is a Skywalker is all stuff we'll be discussing in in a few weeks. But, you know, it almost seems as if all the other movies have tried to figure out, okay, like how, how do we rediscover this awesome balance and you kind of can't do it because, you know, it kind of always has to be about Anakin Skywalker. It has to be about Luke and Anakin's relationship. And, and you know, I I, I wonder if, you know, as you were kind of saying, it's not something that Lucas had really conceived of before, although, you know, it was always kind of in the air in the earlier drafts and Anakin Starkiller and all that stuff. Um, but I don't know, is, is, like, am I crazy? Is this, is this such a good twist that it almost kind of brings Breaks the back of everything that comes after it in, in some way, because it, it does kind of feel like that kind of becomes the core of the franchise in, in a way that I think we're still kind of struggling through, even in in the newer movies, which are obviously about like the new generation and you know Anakin Skywalker's grandson and, and everything like that. It, it kind of shrinks the universe into you know here's he, here here's some stuff that goes on in three generations of of, of Skywalker. i not counting Shmi Skywalker and uh, you know wherever Anakin comes
0: from <laughs> yeah it, it it both personalizes the story more and also limits the story more you in, in in terms of you know and and but it's 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 tough to sort of do such a decisive groundbreaking thing with w- without sort of having you know the fact that it has such a cataclysmic impact on the story is, is part of the reason it's so effective you know one of the things You know that uh, that Mark Hamill, who I also talked to for this story, noted is that um, Harrison Ford didn't even know. You know he you know he was at the premiere. Uh, And in the premiere, after that scene aired, uh, Harrison turned to Mark Hamill and said, hey, you didn't fucking tell me that. You know, so, which is, you know, so he even kind of shocked, you know, know, utterly laconic Harrison Ford. That's how great
1: a twist it is, that Harrison Ford actually cared about a plot point in Star Wars for possibly the first and last time in his life.
0: Exactly, (laughs) he actually... And that was the last time that he did. No, no, no. It, it, uh, what's in another little uh, tidbit from it is um, Hamill was talking about how um, that there, there's so many loud wind machines during that, that he basically couldn't hear anything that, uh, that Vader was, w- was saying, you know, even the fake line, he just had to kind of go off, off the, uh, off the body movements. And, and he was, it was so loud. He couldn't even hear what, what he was saying. And, and that one of the big secrets of Star Wars, or at least the original trilogy, is that most of the dialogue is dubbed. So in other words, most of the dialogue is re-recorded in pr- post-production because there's so much on-set noise. From the little pop, you know, effects that laser pistols make, from wind machines, to like even C-3PO. Uh, C-3PO doesn't sound like metal, he sounds like fiberglass when, when he moves. So there's like this clunking, you know, you know, you know robot, you know, you know, sound on set that you have to completely, uh, you know, eliminate by re-recording all the dialogue. So so pretty much everything you see people say on, on, on screen in Star Wars a lot of the time is, is all from, all from uh, you know, trying to match it later on.
1: I I always think that's so interesting, and obviously, I mean, like you know, the, the act of kind of post-production re- recording and dubbing, you know, to me that kind of conjures up, you know, the, the the fact that like in Italian cinema that was how all dialogue was was ultimately captured for for most of history, and you know the the effect of that. But you know, it just goes to show. I mean, you know, you have all this conversation about ah, you know, what is like what is authentic and yada yada yada, like the I am your father seed. You know, there's so many different effects that are going into it, and so much kind of post-production work that had to happen, and it still really, to me, comes down to, um, you know, the look on Mark Hamill's face after Darth Vader tells him, and I, I, I love the fact that like it's, it's funny to think of like Mark Hamill, you know, as you kind of mentioned in, in your story, he, he, he seems to have just heard what he was actually reacting to, like right before filming, basically, and so you know, there's just such a great these waves of kind of like horror and sadness, and the fact that Luke, who, who in Empire has largely seen like a much older character, certainly than he was in Star Wars, it's such a kind of reductive, childlike moment for him. Like, the, his, his, his particular way of saying, like, no! Like, I just, I, you know, that's, it, it, it's such an incredibly, you know, human moment on top of everything else, and it's something that I, I think, um, you know, everything is just kind of working towards that moment. As you kind of mentioned,
0: the crew must have thought he was like wildly overacting to to <laughs> to, to, the, to the news because it's like, well, you know, you know, Obi Wan killing your father isn't that big of a deal. Geez, you know, yeah, he's yeah, really yeah. he's like, really hamming that, it up there, isn't it? That
1: seems like that seems like more of a huh than a no. But no, I just I, I think that um, you know. <laughs> It's it's such a great as you were saying it's just such a great climactic moment after you know just one of the all-time great you know saber duels in in cinema. Um, Uh, and I do hope that uh, everybody checks out uh, your piece about it, all kinds of fun stuff. I I, I hadn't even really cogitated because Mark Hamill, who of course, uh, you know, for the next generation became famous as a voice actor, as as the voice of the Joker in various Batman things. I guess that was sort of like the beginning of it in some ways, him sort of re-recording all of this dialogue for the early Star Wars movies.
0: wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at
1: southernliving.com slash jam. That wraps it up for this week's episode, but just wanted to give a quick roadmap of what lies ahead uh, for the rest of 2019. Next week we'll be talking Revenge of the Sith and some prequel fun stuff with our pile Chancellor Agard. Week after that, um, James, apparently, people have controversial thoughts about the Last Jedi. Uh, uh, apparently, that movie caused really? a stir when it came out. I was not aware of this. It wasn't we'll be universally di- loved. We'll be we'll be diving deep into <laughs> the Last Jedi and all of the Rey's parents' fun with uh, EW writer Devin Cogan. Then, finally, rounding out the year. Uh, We are going to be discussing a little movie called Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, the newest conclusion to the Skywalker family saga. Maybe everyone will be a Skywalker. What if if Poe Dameron is is a Skywalker? What a shock that that would be. Like Luke, what did you get up to in those years in in, in between trilogies? But uh, for now, that is the end of Star Wars Untold Stories for this week. Uh, Hey, if you like listening to us, or if you don't like listening to us and, and, and you want to tell us why, you can find us on Twitter. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Please direct all negativity my way please direct all positivity james's way because he deserves it um, you can also give us a rating as james mentioned give us a rating give us a review we'd love to hear from you we are on apple Podcasts, spotify radio.com wherever you find your podcasts uh, we love talking star wars here a lot of fun stuff coming up revenge of the sith fans come out strong next week uh, thanks as always to my pal uh james thanks to our producer patrick uh, james anything else to say
0: uh we have spoken
1: boom